It is my great honor and pleasure today to host Suparna Bhattacharya, Distinguished Technologist at Hewlett Packard Labs. Hello, Suparna. Hello. Hi, Dejan. It's wonderful to talk to you again. Uh, I usually start these uh, podcasts with asking people how did they become whatever title they have. So you are a distinguished technologist, but you didn't just become distinguished technologists overnight. You had some career that brought you here, and I'm sure young engineers would like to learn how did you achieve that? Okay, yeah, I've had a 27 year long career so far, so it is it is a long journey. Um, so I, um, uh, I did my uh, BTEC in engineering in IIT Kharagpur in 93, and so I've been working since then. I spent 21 years at IBM and been HP for six years now. And as you said, and I, when I started my career, I actually wanted to take up an academic career and I instead landed up in the industry because I decided to stay back in India instead of applying abroad. Um, and at that time, I really had no idea what a career in computing meant. Um, I actually didn't even take courses in, in operating systems or, or computing related courses. I was more interested in things like pattern matching, fuzzy logic and so forth, uh, you know, and maybe that connects, you know, me back to the AI uh, role that I play in the AI research lab today. So I'm, I'm back full circle. Uh, but then when I joined the organization, that's when I realized, I, I discovered um, that I really loved working on operating systems and that was kind of my first project. So I loved technology, I loved building system software. Uh, and I would say kind of break up my career into like, uh, into a few segments. Like this, the first set of segment is where you're working on the problems that people have defined for you. You Most of the time you're very curious trying to learn and trying to uh, figure out how to, you know, how to solve the problems that have been set for you. Uh, I think uh, the transition for me happened a little after that is when I started working. So I, early career, I worked on the microkernel operating system. So that was the first operating system I worked on. Uh, and then I got a chance to work uh, on a project which was really research, a collaboration with IBM Almaden Research Center. And so it was my first experience of taking something which was a concept in research to product and seeing that realized into, it was actually became a part of the DB2 uh, product. Uh, and so that was a very interesting journey, both working with researchers and being through the entire journey of, of a product life cycle and then supporting that product and the issues that were there. So that was the end of the next level of growth. Uh, and that was kind of the time when I was, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about this more, but at that time uh, back in India, it was kind of, Typical at that time, it was very difficult to, you know, have a technical, purely technical career path as we know today. And that's kind of, mm -hmm. you asked me about being a distinguished technology, which is technologist, which is really being on a full technical career path all along. Um, and so I was growing in the regular trajectory, becoming, a, you know, a, a, you know, doing more project management um, and uh, I was getting nominated uh, for executive development and so forth. But then I sat back and I realized that I really love technology and I wanted to stay a technologist. I was also reaching a phase in the project where I knew there was a very difficult architectural challenge and I knew I could take that up. And so that's the time when I decided that I wanted to go for a technical career path. And I had that discussion with my manager. And I, I would say that there, I was really fortunate. I think all along in the, my career, I've been fortunate that I got that support saying, okay, we don't know how this is going to work out, but, and you have to figure out your path. 
but mm -hmm. it is possible. And so uh, that's my start of the journey for being on a technical career path. And that's when I actually, seven years after working is when I actually did my first patent. I, I wish I had the, you know, I, I knew how to do that before, but I learned how to do, do my first patent. I had my first publication. And the big jump for me came when I started working on the Linux open source with the Linux open source community. IBM had started this Linux technology center and I was really keen to work on that. Uh, and so that gave me a very wide exposure to the external community. Um, and uh, along with that, I was also getting a wider exposure within IBM uh, and because there were others who were also trying to have a technical career path. And it was really that, you know, having that group of people for us to all, uh, you know, develop these things together and may start making proposals, uh, start making strategic proposals and so forth. Uh, so I ended up working, you know, with something called an IBM, uh, we call it a technical experts council. Um, and it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was an a kind of a chapter of the IBM Academy of Technology. And so all of these exposures kind of gave me, slowly kept giving me that breadth. Uh, and and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I had found that my career growth earlier because of taking a technical career path has been slower, but all of a sudden it started accelerating and I was lucky enough to get that first corporate promotion in the technical career path in IBM India. Uh, and so that was the big jump. Uh, now, after that, uh, and maybe we'll talk about that a little more, uh, was that the next phase, right, where I was saying, okay, uh, I worked on the Linux kernel, and those days the Linux uh, was, you know, we were trying to get Linux ready for the enterprise. In some sense, Linux was catching up with operating, other operating systems, and we had reached a time when it felt like Linux had caught up. And we had to figure out what do we do next. And so that was the time when you start thinking, okay, that next phase when you start saying, can I start defining the problems that we work on? And how do I, how do I learn to do that? And that was kind of the time when I decided that maybe uh, I, I wanted to really explore research. Um, I had always thought of doing a PhD before, and I decided to explore research. I did a you know, a, a part-time PhD, and then I moved to uh, a career in research, in IBM research. And uh, so that was kind of the next jump. And that's kind of after a few years in research is when I actually joined HPE. I had that opportunity. Um, I was very interested in persistent memory technologies and, you know, and particularly HP was working on the machine at that time. It was very exciting. So when I got that offer from HP, I came on board. And that's kind of how, you know, the, the combination of my past experience and my research experience, I guess, was, uh, you know, brought me to being a, being a DT. So you mentioned uh, you were working on a microkernel. Which microkernel was that? Was that the uh, IBM microkernel, which yes, was yes, uh, which was based on the CMU Mark operating system. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was working on the on that for my PhD, and then at Open Software Foundation as well. So we're working on the same thing on different side of the fence. Yeah. And and you said you did your uh, PhD thesis uh, later in your career. You did it while you were working in IBM, or how did it happen? Yes, uh, it was uh, it was a part time. So it was an ex. Uh, so Indian Institute of Science had an external registration program. So I did my PhD uh, part time through that. So I had a guide from IBM, and I, I had a guide from the university. Professor Gopinath was my professor advisor there, um, and and you know. So I think it was a very different experience. So as I was saying, uh, I, I picked that, uh, picked my research subject as I was very interested in energy efficiency, and I was, I wanted to do something more than what we could do at the systems uh, level, which is, you know, often we, most of the time, we save energy by 
turning things off or slowing them down. So you can turn off memory banks, turn off uh, processors, or you slow them down. And I realized mm -hmm. that there was a, not a lot that we could do purely at the operating system layer. As much as I've loved working on the kernel, I realized that a lot of the inefficiencies were up uh, further up higher in the stack. And so I came across this problem of framework-based applications and you know, a lot of papers and work on how much overheads are there in those applications. And I figured if there is so much overhead, then uh, you know how much energy could be saved if we if we solve that problem, and it was a really hard problem to solve. And so my PhD thesis, I think that the cool thing there was, uh, it was a very good piece of advice that my uh, you know my thesis advisor gave me. He said, "You have done systems now, you know, you pick up the other subjects. I take courses in other subjects. So I took courses in program analysis. I took courses in machine learning, in uh, you know power performance modeling. And so um, and my thesis work, I ended up using all of that. So I ended up working with each of these communities. Um, it was a very uh, different learning experience for me because when we were doing product development, you kind of come top down because you architect the product, you design it, and then you build the pieces. In research, I realized the outcome was really the insight. So, so it took me a lot of, uh, you know, I had to really learn how do you really go and produce insight and how do you really mm -hmm. follow your curiosity, discover things, and then build, synthesize your, your insights from that. So that was a pretty interesting uh, learning experience from for me, uh, both I think the research experience as well as working with all different communities, with the program analysis community, the systems community, with the machine learning community, and learning from that. So, and and then you also uh, uh, wrote a book. Tell tell you tell us a little bit about your experience writing the oh. book. So I wrote a book actually while I was at HPE. So uh, so this this was actually a follow on from my thesis work. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, my thesis work, I realized that this problem of software bloat could impact energy efficiency, power and performance. Uh, and when I came to HPE and I started working on uh, persistent memory from a storage side, I started realizing that this problem it was deja vu all over again for me that I realized that this was a problem that really makes it hard for us to take advantage of emerging new hardware technologies because the hardware latencies are going down and the software patterns were going up. Uh, and so that's kind of what uh, inspired me, motivated me to keep developing those ideas um, and write a book. And this book was actually written in collaboration with my advisor, Professor Gopinath, and my uh, colleague, uh, Doug Voigt, uh, uh, who, who I worked very closely with. Uh, and. Uh, and and we tackle this problem of you know of software bloat. We tackle the problem of how do you really make software stacks evolve as the as new technologies emerge. And also because I had started working on AI and analytics kind of applications and what could we do from a storage side to improve them. So I also discovered this notion of, you know, the idea of the book was that we should, can we make uh, the resource consumption of software proportional to what it is trying to do? And so proportional to what the functionality is, uh, in proportion with what the hardware technologies allow you to do and be as fast as that. And thirdly, consume data in proportion to what you need for analytics applications. Yeah. Very nice. So you transitioned then to AI, which was really coming back because in your early career, you're also interested in it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more, what are you working on? What are these interesting problems now that you're attacking? 
Yeah, so I um, so it started with when I was saying that I know I've looked at AI applications and because I was a system software developer, you tend to always look at it from the from the place that you you are you are used to, and I realized that the goal of AI applications was to derive meaning or insights out of data. And all the cool things that we had done in system software, virtual memory, how we design storage tiering and all of these things, they are not really geared at that objective because they are geared at uh, optimizing what the applications seem to be doing, but they do not know that you're really trying to derive insight out of data. And so I was very curious to see that as an, at an infrastructure level, what could we do to make AI applications better? And, you know, and my current work kind of relates to that. So, you know, if I look at AI uh, uh, applications today uh, at, at the, maybe at the storage or infrastructure level, we provide them data access, we provide them efficient data access, reliable data access, but what they really need, uh, the applications need is good data at the right time, data that's very rich in insight so that, that you can actually get better models out of it. How do we build systems to do that? You know, how do we build systems that will prioritize that insight rich, clean, trustworthy data and get it to these AI applications? So the idea here was that we can do that if we can learn what the AI applications are actually trying to do. And we can learn that by observing what these applications are doing with the data. And so that's kind of what led me to this, you know, the, the project that I'm working at now in AI Research Lab is what we call uh, a self-learning uh, data foundation for AI. Um, and the self-learning happens by tracking these AI applications data lineage, right? That, um, that how are these applications uh, as they are going through these data transformations? What are those transformations? What in intermediate outputs are they resulting in? What's the metric or what's the accuracy metric uh, and, and other kinds of measurements that are resulting from it? And we observe all the AI applications that are working on a piece of data over a period of time. And so maybe if there are many data scientists who are working on it, we learn from that collective information and then you know, build a lot of these self-learning techniques. So that's that's the key idea. So if I understood you correctly, uh, you are trying to uh, identify that lineage, how data and models were generated, and then using this, uh, then that leads to uh, self-explainable AI. Is that right? Yes, yes. So this is one of the things. So you all want to have AI that's trustworthy, where you don't even just want to know the right answer, but you want to know that it got it right for the right reasons. And so then you have confidence on that. Uh, and by tracking, as you rightly pointed out, by tracking this information all the way through, you can now trace back. And uh, it takes a lot more techniques on top of that information that you can process that information and then come up with the reasoning um, and get like lead to more explainable AI. And, and I presume that in order for this to be broadly trusted uh, and adopted, you need some sort of standard. So presumably you are going to take this uh, data foundation, as you call it, uh, self-learning data foundation for AI and, and have the world uh, researchers, scientists, developers adopt it so that any user and any other developer can then uh, interact with it and, and obtain explanation and things like that. Is that the plan? Yeah, so the way we're thinking about it is we would like this to work with open source communities. So, I mean, data lineage is not a new thing or even tracking AI models and AI experiments. There are lots and lots of tools there, but as you see the problems are there, some are proprietary tools, there are lots of separate open source projects. 
so it's a very fragmented ecosystem. So what we would like to do is to have kind of the equivalent of Git. You know, so when I was working on the Linux kernel, I think it, Linux kernel development took a huge leap after Git came into existence. So we would like to see the same leap here. Could we have the equivalent of a Git uh, for AI data and AI metadata? And the way we would like to do it is there are open source projects as an open source project, for example, called data version control. There are other open source projects like MLflow. So there are a lot of these open source projects. Uh, there is uh, the Kubernetes ecosystem has Kubeflow. So we would like to really work with these open source communities, connect these things together and yes, and make that available to everybody so that that lineage information gets tracked and is usable by everybody. You made uh, really important contributions in the past to uh, open source community, especially Linux. Uh, you are authority in this space. So can you tell us uh, about the importance of open source to the uh, general industry? Yeah, I think, I mean, my experience with open source, uh, uh, I think there are many aspects that really make it uh, very exciting and interesting. So I think, firstly, as I said, if you're doing something with open source, then it gets very wide adoption if it is successful. And the cool thing about working with an open source community is because it has this wide adoption, uh, you get a lot of feedback. So every time I was working, for example, on the Linux kernel, when I would post a patch or propose something, I would always get feedback from very diverse kinds of users saying, okay, this didn't work for me, this broke for me, and that forces you to go back and think and develop things, which would really work very broadly. And so that feedback loop, that adoption loop, uh, and I think that's the that's the real power of, of working in the open source community. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and so I see that that's true also in the AI area, for example, but um, I think the advantage we had in Linux was uh, a lot of people were working on the same community, and so it was yeah, it was much easier in that sense that it was it was easier from an adoption for people who were adopting it. It was obviously more difficult for us who were trying to trying to build that. Um, yeah. Um, but you were also engaged with professional organizations, uh, either um, worldwide or national. So worldwide IEEE and the National um, Indian uh, Institute of Science, uh, Indian National Academy of Engineers. Can you tell us a little bit from your experience about the importance of these professional organizations? Oh, yes. Um, so I, yeah, so as you said, the, you know, so member of ACM, member of IEEE, and recently got elected to the Indian National Academy of Engineers. So one thing that I have realized in my career is, uh, as I was saying, just like the open source community, uh, that was very interesting, and you know, to get that feedback from the open source community. Uh, likewise, when we work in uh, the professional, like especially when we work with conferences, and which which is what I started during my PhD research, and you start going to conferences and you start working with the program committees of the conferences, you get a very rich perspective uh, from that that point of view, and then these in these organizations that you're saying, you're talking about like IEEE or INAE, these give even broader perspective because we have people who are from the industry, people who are from the academia, uh, people who are from many dis different disciplines uh, beyond us. Uh, so I think that engagement, at least to me, is, is a, it, it really you know, opens up your, your mind. Uh, and it also, I think it's also an opportunity 
I feel personally that I had a lot of help in my career. I had a lot of support which helped me grow. And so these are also opportunities for us to reach out to you know, others in the community and try to help in whatever way we can. For example, I love doing workshops for grad students because for me, the PhD was a big learning experience, right? It, it was nothing like what I expected. And I know that every PhD student faces that. Uh, or if I look at the domain of system software, I think a lot of people do not necessarily realize, you know, how much a career in system software can offer and being able to see that full trajectory helps them. So I love doing these kinds of sessions and these kind of communities and engagements and academy engagements all kind of give me that opportunity to do that. And these, and these professional organizations uh, are also basis for recognition. You recently uh, got a few awards. Um, uh, beside, as you mentioned, being elected on Indian uh, National Academy of Engineers, you got an award from India Council, uh, from Indian Institute of Science. Can you tell us a little bit about these? And by the way, congratulations. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think the awards are, in some sense, they are accumulation of what has happened past in the historical sense, right? So it's not like we do anything specific for an award, uh, but I think it was very nice to be recognized by the IEEE India Council as their Women uh, Technologies of the Year Award. Um, and it somehow maybe this year has been the year of awards. A couple of years ago, I, I got this enough uh, 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 you know, Next Generation Women's Leader Award, which was more from an industry point of view. Uh, and then IEEE kind of gives the recognition from this professional organization. And then recently I got uh, an award from my alma mater, Indian Institute of Science, where I did my PhD uh, with the Professor S.K. Chatterjee Award. So it's, it's very satisfying to be able to get this. But I also feel like uh, there's a lot more to do. And uh, <laughs> You know, yeah. it, it's, yeah. But, you know, while satisfying to individually and as a recognition, I, I find it very important to become role model for your young students so that they, and that's one of the reasons why we are doing this, yeah. so that young Indian women can learn how to become as successful as you have become. Yeah. And, and, and th this brings us to this uh, broader notion that at HP we called a force for good. Yeah. Uh, and you already gave us some examples how you're helping grad students. Uh, can, can you tell us about other examples or giving back to uh, community humanity? Uh, yeah, so I think in, uh, in HP, even last year, we had the whole effort around COVID um, AI research, right? So there was this whole effort to say, how could AI or how could AI researchers help with the COVID initiative? And we had a lot of volunteers from within HPE to, to help with that. So that was really one, one big example. And, you know, we, I mean, I was also part of that initiative. Uh, there is, uh, you know, I also feel that uh, in terms of, you know, be going through, we're, I'm, since I'm working on data, right? So one of the things that you realized in the COVID initiative and many other initiatives that we have, for example, I'm working with Janice Sankas and Lynn Nees on something we call a data sets as a service uh, standard, because what we realized is that in many areas, for example, agriculture, you know, where people really can make, you can make a huge impact with AI if you can actually give farmers 
much better insights about what crops to grow, what are the things that they could do, you know, what would give them better price and so forth. But that requires data. And we really don't have a good system in place for these kinds of data to be available. A similar kind of situation for health in some of these areas. So I think that's that's one of the other areas that I think we can we are we are trying to play a role in and see if we can really provide these kinds of open data sets as a service and solve the challenges of making data accessible for uh, for these big social societal problems so to say a great example another topic that has uh, really broad implications is about inclusion and diversity yeah. it is a really critical topic in the united states but also in india and uh, around the world so can you tell us your perspective both from what you have seen in India and what you have seen around the world? Yeah, uh, so I think uh, the, I mean, there are many elements to inclusion and diversity. So there might be gender, there might be geography, there might be race. So there are many of these elements. I think I mean, one of the things for me was this whole experience, I think, of working on the Linux kernel and some of that is really the importance of valuing diversity. Uh, so, uh, and really I've seen this, you know, personally, that when you have diverse thoughts and diverse people, diverse cultures in a place, you just have a lot of richer, you know, richer insights and explosion. And obviously, that is only possible if not just if you just don't have these diverse voices in the room, but they feel safe enough to speak, right? They are. Uh, and I often used to get asked you know, when I used to work on this, you know, like, there were many times when I was the only woman in the room or you know, the only person from India on the phone. And I used to always say that, you know, no matter where you are, right, whether it's a physical room or a virtual room, what it matters is what you are there in the room, you know, to discuss and, you know, not who, you know, not, not who you are individually. Uh, so I think I've seen over the years, there has been a lot of efforts to, to improve these. And one thing I think so there is diversity, there is inclusion, but I think there's the third aspect of enablement of, uh, because if you enable people to succeed, I think when we succeed in a career, I, if I look back, it's not my own success. It's really because people reached out and supported me and helped me at just the right junctures. It's almost like, um, and it gets harder when you're trying in your technical career path. I think when you're reaching that stage, when you're trying to do innovation, you're just trying to do things that are uncertain that even you are not sure of. That's kind of the time uh, where we really need support. And I think if we are able to bring those kinds of mechanisms in, maybe the right mentoring, the right support, the right resources at the right time, then I think we will start to see more people uh, in senior leadership roles coming from diverse backgrounds. And we're seeing that today actually in, you know, in HP. I mean, I, I mean, I feel very happy that over maybe the last three years or so, we've seen uh, multiple people, very strong you know, uh, women, technical career path candidates who, who have now made that journey, right? And they are, they are progressing in their technical career path. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's, and, you know that's that's the crux crux uh, crux of it day in day out you're focused on technology uh do you ever have time to unwind and how do you do that yes i i i love uh, reading books i love uh, going for walks um, I love spending time with my family, whatever time I can get. <laughs> so little things, but they, they really keep me energized. Yeah. 
what what uh, book did you read last yeah so interestingly enough i mean i do read all kinds of books i i read technology books i read uh, you know my husband is in the indian institute of management so i read business books but i also read i love physics and i like to read uh, books around that but the book that i'm reading now is actually a book um, on ai but it is a book about ai weirdness it's a book by janel shin and she has very interesting examples of you know using deep learning to create poetry and uh, create recipes you know you mentioned you you loved cooking uh, and using that she's really bringing out these very interesting examples of where ai works well and where it doesn't where it fails in very weird ways um, so it's it's a very exciting very fun book that i'm reading right now when you and i chatted in preparation for this uh, podcast uh, and i asked you what do you do any sports you said you didn't but that you support your husband uh running marathon and i was just wondering uh can you use any of data lineage techniques and data foundation to track his results and then <laughs> enable him to be more effective in marathon yeah he is already very effective he's been running marathons yeah he started with a running group about you know, 10 12 years ago and uh, i've seen that progress over years uh, so it's uh, it's um, actually it's very very inspiring to see that group uh, and how they support each other and uh, how they manage to actually make that kind of progress uh, and I, you know earlier it used to be like you said supporting him for marathon so he would run an ultra ultra marathon or he would go for maybe the bangalore marathon and i would be there these days he just runs marathons in the campus he just goes out for a run it comes back and says i you know i i ran 5 hours today so it's just become regular for him right so uh, so yeah. yeah thank you thank you very much suparna uh, some great examples for young generations i'll make sure to show my daughters this video uh, i learned myself and and i i'm sure they will and many other young women thanks for joining us thanks, thanks.